Welcome to episode 145 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with PsychArmor trusted partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all of the podcast players or by going to psycharmor.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us in Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. Our sponsor this week is PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. On today's episode, I'm having a conversation with the Honorable Cheryl L. Mason, who served for nearly five years as the fourth Senate-confirmed presidential appointee and the first woman and military spouse, chairman of the Board of Veterans' Appeals at the U.S. Department of Veterans' Affairs. Throughout her career, Ms. Mason held several positions at the VA and other federal agencies. She's the spouse of an Air Force veteran and the daughter of a World War II Navy veteran. She advocates for supporting and changing the culture and increasing awareness surrounding mental health and suicide awareness and prevention. Another quick note before we get started, as I realized after the conversation that some listeners may not have the context around what the Board of Veterans' Appeals is or what it does. Created in 1933 by President Franklin D. Roosevelt, the board was delegated the authority to make decisions about cases that were appealed to the Secretary of Veterans Affairs. When a decision is made by the VA, such as a decision on a disability rating, education benefits, or other situations, as you'll hear Sherry talk about in our conversation, the veteran has the right to appeal that decision if they think, for example, that the VA denied benefits for a disability that the veteran believes should be service-connected or the veteran believes that their disability rating should be higher than how the VA rated it. So the Board of Veterans' Appeals is the decision-making authority for the appeals process, significantly important to the lives of thousands of veterans. You can find out more about Sherry by checking out her bio in our show notes. So let's get into my conversation with her and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. Sherry, thank you for joining us on the show. So glad to have you. I'm excited to be able to share your work and experience. But before we get into that, I'd like to give you an opportunity to share a bit about your story and why the work you do is so important to you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk about it. So when you step into a leadership role, whether it's it's leadership is where you sit, but when you step into a leadership role, such as a political appointee or a CEO, you're really given a platform. And when you're given that type of platform, it's really an opportunity to make an impact beyond perhaps what you realize. And so when I stepped into the chairman's role, I thought about that a lot. And I basically decided that in addition to being the chairman of the Board of Veterans Appeals, that it was very important to me to speak about veterans transition, suicide prevention and awareness, as well as military spouse engagement. There's a whole pot there, but those things really interplay with each other the way I see it and also the way I saw it at the board from my work with the Veterans Benefits Administration, Veterans Health Administration, and across the department. And so as I retired and transitioned into quote-unquote retirement, which is just pivoting to a new role for me, I really brought that with me. And my mission statement is purpose, impact, value. I do all of those things and whatever I do, whether it's boards, whether it's consulting, whether it's speaking or even writing a web, it's about purpose, impact, value. Because I think as leaders, we have a responsibility to do that. 
But I also think as people, we need to figure out what we're here to do and how we help others do that. And so in those areas, that platform, those planks even in that platform, military spouse, suicide prevention, veterans transition, those come from your own lived experience, your personal experience as a military spouse. I, I would imagine supporting family members as they're transitioning. So I'm curious how your lived experience has really informed your passion for these topics. Yes. So my lived experience is I am a multiple suicide loss survivor. I lost both my father and my brother before I was 18 years old. And my father was a veteran, World War II. My brother had spent some time in the reserve because he was actually at boot camp when my father died. And so he transitioned into the reserves. I have a personal experience with, with loss of suicide, but I also have a professional experience because I lost people as a leader. And they're both very hard and challenging. As a military spouse, I entered as a very young 22-year-old spouse, had no idea what was ahead of me, and learned very quickly that at that time, the military spouse community, while appearing to be supportive, was not to those who wanted to find a career. And so there were obstacles and challenges on top of, you know, my already lived experience. And so, you know, I, I challenged, I pushed, and I believed in standing up for who I was. That's who I was taught. I was taught not to hide in the shadows and to step out and be me, thanks to a legendary badass mother that I had. As I went into VA and started climbing the ladder and really just watching what was happening in VA, as well as living in the military lifestyle, and seeing transition firsthand, not only with my husband, but with our friends, transition is a very hard thing. And it doesn't just happen to the service member. It happens to the entire family. Many times that's not understood by the community itself. It's not understood by the family members. And it's definitely not understood in those who are trying to support it. I think that was one of the areas that I really felt led to speak to and talk to not only as for veterans benefits and all those things, but also just understanding that transitioning from the military lifestyle and then going into civilian, it, it's a different world and understanding how to speak that language and how to figure out your tribe and your place. And it's not one and done. It, it's a process because your life changes and you look for different things along the way. And as you're talking about that and really specifically thinking about that transition, thinking of my own experience, my military career spanned from pre-9-11, I joined in the early 90s, it almost evenly split between pre and post-9-11. But I think in the 90s, even, there wasn't this, like you would get out and people just, you get out and you're just out. There really, this transition discussion really didn't come to play until the first or even the second wave of combat veterans which really then comes into, as you were talking about, military spouses needing more support in that time, obviously concerns that may or may not lead to suicide coming at that term. And really, this transition conversation has only been within the last 20 to 25 years. Yes. And I, I would actually say it's really been serious in the last 10 to 15. Right. Uh, yeah, definitely. And my husband served from the late 80s to early, early 2000s, and he's been been 14, I have to add, 14 or 15 years out. And he's had six different jobs, not because he can't keep a job, but because he's an asset. And so he's sought after. But those transitions, as he transitions positions, and as the family changes, our kids got older and I moved into to the position I moved in with the government for a while, we had to make some decisions about what were best for our family, just as we did when he was serving. 
Yeah. And I think that's in this idea of transition, like you said, it's not just one and done and it happens continually. You've mentioned a couple of times your amazing career in the Department of Veterans Affairs. You became the first woman and the first military spouse to serve as the chairman of the Board of Veterans Appeals. And it's interesting, a lot of times when veterans think of VA, they think of the health clinic, like the Veterans Health Administration, where they go to get medical support. Maybe sometimes they'll think about the VBA occasionally, but I'm curious to hear about that work that you did, not just very important for you, but also for the veterans that you were serving as the chairman of the Board of Veterans Appeals. Yes. I was with the department for a total of 28 years out of my 30 years of service, which as a military spouse, to be able to have 30 years of federal service is no experience in and of itself. But the, I was with the board all of that time. The board is a very unique entity in that most people do not understand it if they even know it exists. Most people don't know it exists until they have an appeal. <laughs> that, which means the veterans, they didn't like primarily their disability compensation rating or their educational decision from Veterans Benefits Administration. The board is actually the secretary's designee to decide appeals from across the department. The board decides appeals from Veterans Benefits Administration, all seven business lines, home loan, insurance, education, BRE, disability compensation is by far the largest. And then also from Veterans Health Administration. More recently, caregivers became a significant issue in the last few years of my service. But also general counsel. There are some issues that general counsel is the first level of jurisdiction. And so the issue comes to the board. Most of those are attorney's fees issues, but there's a few others. The board is composed primarily of lawyers. There's a contingent of about 130 judges, veterans law judges, who are appointed by the secretary, approved by the president of the United States because they are the secretary's designee. And then there's about, I think, 900 to 1,000 attorneys who basically serve as clerks and who write the cases for the judges. And then you have about 200, 250 support staff. They are subject matter experts because they have to be. And the subject matter of the board is a mile wide and a mile deep. I was there for 28 years. I felt like I had gone to medical school, even though I didn't, because you have to know the disability law. You have to know the diagnostic codes. You have to know how they work. You have to understand what the doctors, what the opinions are telling you. You also have to understand the court and their decisions because the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims that has been around for about 32 years is the overarching court for the board and the department. But the interesting thing about the board is I always called it when I was there, the canary in the coal mine, because it could see across the department. It worked. The chairman is one of the local appointees. And there's 11. The chairman position is the equivalent to an assistant secretary. But the board is a direct service organization, like directly serving veterans and their families, just like Veterans Benefits, Veterans Health, and Cemetery. So it, it is in between the undersecretary and the assistant secretary level, but it's equivalent to the assistant secretary. And it and because of how the board sat and because of the awareness, we often knew about issues. And one of the things that, that I did as chairman, in addition to bringing in some technological changes that we sorely needed, I also built our relationships with our stakeholders, both our veteran service organizations, our military service organizations, and our Hill staff and those members of the Hill, Congress and senators. And so because we had a great relationship, I would hear things, usually first. 
And so that was interesting. And then the other piece of that is the appeals modernization, which was implemented while I was chairman, was really in, even though it was both claims and appeals, it was the board's responsibility to oversee that and implement that. And so moving the, the number of appeals, claims and appeals from nearly 500,000 at the time I became chairman in late 2017 to about 95,000 by the time I left office in, in late 2022 was a significant achievement. But it was done by myself leading it, but also in collaboration with the department and the administrations. You know, I, I think it's it's very fascinating when we talk about, as you were mentioning, the veterans, if they got a decision in something, again, mainly disability, and they, it comes to you because they feel like something's wrong. Like this, you don't get things for people on their best days. You get things when people Fresh. think they're frustrated, but you said something that was, that was very interesting, the idea of like a canary in a coal mine. I'm curious if things like the board started to see things like burn pit stuff before it became, is that kind of the thing you're referring to? Yes. We did. Burn pits, groundwater, mm. caregivers, mm. because those would be tested at the board. And many times, because the board is a, the judges have full judicial discretion by the secretary, they looked at each case and could decide the case on the merits of each case. It's not precedent. And so the only precedent that controls is the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims or the Supreme Court, of course. And so, you know, the board would be looking at these cases and there would sometimes be allowances that created some tension. But because we were seeing those things, I pushed really hard when I stepped into the chairman's role for the board to have more of a seat and a say at the table and with the rest of the department. And I did. I won that battle. But the other piece of that is it was important for us to be there because of those things we saw, but also because we were changing the process, like with appeals modernization and some other things happening with technology improvements that we were able to get, which the board had not had really any technology investment for a number of years, just minor technology. <laughs> That's being nice. It was about 40 years. <laughs> you the know, legal profession is an old and honored profession. Well, it's old. But anyway, so by just tweaking some technology and implementing some technology, I, I was able, in listening to my employees, which is why part of the book is about Dare to Relate and, and, and listening and, and connecting, I was able to implement some changes that resulted in the board doubling the number of appeals we could issue, as well as the number of hearings we could hold. And that was a combination of empowering and engaging the employees, but also using technology to support instead of measure the employees. Again, I think it's, and perhaps people might find it strange to be fascinating, but I think about it's fascinating in the context of where we're at in this point in time is the transition between the older veteran population. Likely when you started working, a lot of the early appeals were related to Korean War, Vietnam, maybe not even really Gulf War, but now you have this significant influx of combat veterans, the largest cohort of combat veterans since World War II from post 9-11 veterans. The technological change wasn't just good to do. It was necessary, necessary, given that we're going to be supporting veterans for the next 50 years like this. Actually, when I started, we were still serving quite a few World War II mm. veterans, and we were losing them quickly, mm -hmm. but we were still serving. And you're right, the transition that happened, not only did that transition need to happen because our veteran group was different. They were more 
comfortable with the technology, got used to technology as that changed with time. But also, you're exactly on points. The age of the veteran during the time I served as chairman, for the first time in I don't know how many years, dropped below age 50, mm-hmm. which was big deal. And the number of issues that came up and the secondary issues and things like that that, that could come up were different because our veteran, because our medicine our, our medicine had improved so much that people were surviving with wounds that they didn't survive in World War II. And so, you know, it's a different process. And, and that's really what happened with caregivers because of some changes around supporting our veterans and what they needed for caregivers, but also because they, they could still live their lives. Those were significant changes that, that changed the the landscape. And that's going to continue at VA. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. And there's all of these different aspects, right? These are all different facets of the entire puzzle. You've mentioned the book that you've written, Dare to Relate, Leading with the Fierce Heart. Your book is due to be released in 2024. It's available for pre-order now as we record this. I'm, and, and you've alluded to it a little bit based on your experience and this cross-generational engagement. Um, but I'm wondering if you can share with us what readers might expect to find in the book, a- along with some of this platform that you said you've carried in your post-government career. So what they can expect to find is a story of, an, of how an unconventional leader developed from the experiences of my childhood with multiple suicide loss, growing up in Appalachia, as well as becoming a military spouse and, and living that life and, and experiencing those challenges. My viewpoint very much is that challenges are, you know, it's often said they're opportunities waiting to be discovered. I really view them as catalyst for foundational change. And so that's what you're going to see in the book. You're going to see the move from a memoir type beginning to let's talk about how you figure out who you are as a leader, if that's something you're interested in. And the other thing with that is people lead from wherever they sit. You don't have to be a CEO to be a leader. Podcast people are leaders because they're driving discussions and impact. I think understanding that, but understanding who you are and taking that on, developing yourself, and then moving through that process to kind of the how-to pieces, what things you should be thinking about, then getting to, as we wrap up, the keys, or I call it the leadership toolbox. My father was a carpenter, and my earliest memories of him are spent in his workshop playing with his tools. And he was always telling me that it's important to know what the tool is for and know how to use it, but have the proper skills to do that. And so I think that's extremely important for a leader. You have to know what your tools that you need, and then you have to know the skills are to do them and then to to use those tools. And then kind of a roadmap and a guide about some things to think about as you step into leadership, whether you're a new leader whether you aspire to be a leader, whether you're currently a leader and you're trying to figure out how to lead a different generation, the millennials and the Gen Zs are, are completely different than we've seen before. And I, I, I say that kind of with a grain of salt because mm-hmm. they are different, but I think it's because they're more vocal and they're more engaged about what their expectations are. I don't necessarily think that employees' expectations have changed. I think they're just more vocal and more involved, and leaders are going to have to figure out how to manage and care and engage and connect with the the people, the people 
that are your employees and understand that your engagement, your behavior, your activity as a leader directly impacts the people who work for you as well as their families. Yeah, I think it's really interesting as I think about what you just shared there in context of your journey of over 30 years in the VA. We talked about the shifting population of, of the veterans you served, but then also the people that you worked with and worked for changed significantly in that period of time. We're seeing this in the mental health space, more veterans going to the mental health space, probably more. I've, I've frequently said the next Supreme Court justice with military experience is going to come from this generation. And so I think that there is that idea of, like you said, leading now isn't like it was leading even 20 years ago, but definitely not in the mid-90s. Yeah, it's. I started climbing a leadership ladder in the early 2000s when I became a veterans law judge, and then I moved into a chief judge and then senior executive. And, you know, when I, like I said, when I started at VA in 1990, <laughs> you know, it, it was different. The, my colleagues were different. The experience was different. And, you know, it was just a different world. And, you know, we started to see change in the 90s and then we continued to see change. But I think with I think with some things that happened from 9-11 to COVID, there have been significant changes. And those changes, just like they impact society, impact the workforce. So the workforce today is made up of boomers. There's still boomers out there. And you've got the millennials that are walking in and the Gen Zs, the millennials are actually stepping in and starting to step into leadership roles. And then the Gen Zs are right behind them. And then you've got the Gen Alphas that are coming along. (laughs) They're coming along out there. And so it's very, it's not only do you have to manage those interrelationships with your teams and help them understand and relate to each other, but you as the leader set the tone for that. And one of the stories that I tell is during COVID, I had a fairly new executive team and we were still figuring each other out. And for the most part, and, but I knew that my, my employees, my people needed to hear from me. And so I immediately started getting online and connecting with people and having teams calls and sending emails and and trying to do some things. And my executive team was like trying to figure out what I was doing because I hadn't shared that with them, right? Because we hadn't built that relationship yet. And so, you know, I had to kind of back up and say, okay, this is kind of where we're going. And it took some of them a few minutes to figure that out because that wasn't their comfort zone. And they were like, maybe we could do this. And I'm like, you have to be hands-on and visible. Have to be. And that's just... That's the difference of understanding the experience that I lived from being a mil- both being a military spouse, but also a suicide loss survivor and going through some other significant changes. I knew where my team was and I had built those relationships. And so when they started reaching out to me with concerns, I knew I had to engage. And so I brought the rest of the team with me. Uh, But what happened out of that is the employees, the people who worked for us, once I started, they took off with it and ran with it. They were just waiting for me to say it was okay. No, I think that's, and even as you were talking about these catalysts for change within a workforce, even within someone's life, as you were talking about your own personal experience, but also really globally within the community, it absolutely resonates. 
So if people wanted to find out more, check out, pre-order the book, or find out more about the work that you're doing and, and support you in some of these efforts in your post-career, how can they do that? So I have a website. It's uh, Catalyst, just like it sounds, Catalyst Leadership. That's all one word, mgmt.com. And you can find out everything I'm doing from, from my consulting business to my speaking. I'm going to be launching more of my public speaking engagements, and I'm starting to book those now. And then more information on the book is on there, and you'll also be able to do some pre-orders of the book there as well. And you can always, always follow me on LinkedIn. <laughs> and I'll make sure that all of links to those are in the show notes so folks want to be able to access. Sherry, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. And I want to thank you very much for all your service and your hard work, because I know your commitment to this and working in the mental health space is, is a challenge. And I appreciate all those who do that. Thank you. Once again, we'd like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners, as well as custom training options for organizations. I mentioned it a couple times during my conversation with Sherry, but I found this fascinating. As both a veteran and a mental health professional, I was sort of aware of the Board of Veterans Appeals, but it was always this organization that was high up in the hierarchy of the VA, and I didn't know much about it beyond that's where veterans went when they wanted to appeal a decision made by the VA. There were a lot of things that intrigued me during this conversation. The idea of the Board of Appeals being an organization that likely saw the first wave of many of the issues we're addressing in veterans today, like Sherry said, such as environmental exposure or caregiver support. The idea of serving a population that's in the midst of a generational shift. If you go back and listen to the episode, you'll notice that Sherry mentioned boomers, millennials, and Gen Z, but skipped over Gen X. And as a card-carrying middle child Gen Xer, that's okay, we're used to it. But the idea of leadership in a transitional time is significant. As a short aside, I once served with someone who served during the invasion of both Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as both the 2006-2007 surge in Iraq and the 2009-2010 surge in Afghanistan, which could be seen as the height of both of those conflicts. In a 10-year Army career, he experienced what were arguably the foremost critical points in those two wars. My conversation with Sherry gave me the same feeling. From her early service supporting the appeals of World War II veterans to likely starting to see claims from the very last veterans of the global war on terror 80 years later, and to manage that significant shift in need and technology, even in the way that the VA does business, took an extraordinary leader, and Sherry was that leader. So check out her book if you want to hear more about it, and reach out to her for more of this great insight. So I hope you appreciated this conversation with Sherry. If you did, we would appreciate hearing from you. So if you do have some feedback, let us know. Drop a review in your podcast player of choice, or send us an email at info at we're always glad to hear from listeners, both feedback on the show and suggestions for future guests. For this week's PsychArmor Resource of the Week, I'd like to share the PsychArmor course, Understanding the VA for You and Your Family. In this course, you will receive a comprehensive overview of the VA's many available services, tools, and resources. You can find a link to the course in our show notes. So thanks for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find in the podcast app, as well as on the PsychArmor website, psychomer.org forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can find hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. 
Come back each week for another conversation and make sure to engage with Psychummer on social media to let us know what you thought about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Much appreciation to the team at PsychArmor that makes the show happen. Carol Turner, Vice President of Strategic Communications, who keeps me on track and is an outstanding guest coordinator. Support and transcripts by Emma Atheroff. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we request that you do, but make sure to let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode, and until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.